friends. Welcome to RUF. Um, if this is your first time, my name is Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. And this is year seven for me. So I've been here a little while, year 12 overall. Um, and if you've been with us, you know we're going through the book of Revelation this semester. And um, that might sound weird to you if it's your first time, but it's been really fun and beautiful, I think, for me at least, to go through. We've said week by week, Revelation is a book given by Jesus about Jesus. And it really isn't a book that God is not a God of confusion. The book of Revelation is not trying to ramp up your anxiety or frustrate you or confuse you. It really is a book about Jesus, and it really is a book that is a retelling, we've said week by week, of the gospel story, mainly through these powerful images and allusions. And we get another one of those tonight. So tonight we're in Revelation 5, and it really is the kind of the sequel, if you will, to Revelation 4. Uh, that we looked at last week. We looked at last week that there is a throne. Sometimes life feels like there's not a throne. And if there is, it feels like no one has owned it. And Revelation 4 was giving us this reminder and this picture that God is on his throne. And uh, we learned about that this is one of the answers to our worries and anxieties uh, is to remember God's care for us, that he really is both sovereign and good to us. But Revelation 5 is really a continuation of this... um, of Revelation 4. We're still at the throne, but we're going to see something new tonight, especially, particularly about Jesus that we've said week by week. So here, Revelation 5. If it's in your handout, if you want to read along. If not, we're just reading the whole. It's not super long, so we're going to read the whole uh, chapter. Here's what John wrote. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated in the throne a scroll written within, and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls uh, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea And all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let me pray for us. This is a lot, a lot to take in. Let me pray for us, and then I want to try to unpack a, a little bit of this uh, together tonight. Let's pray first. Jesus, you are the Lamb who is worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our love. You are worthy of our honor. You are worthy of our uh, passions. You are worthy of our desires. You are worthy of all that we are, all that we could possibly offer you, our very lives. And Lord, we admit that that's not the way that we came in here tonight. We haven't come thinking about your worthiness. We haven't come singing your praises, at least speaking for myself. Lord, instead we come full of ourselves, full of self-love, full of self-praise, tearing others down, speaking harsh words behind our friends' backs, uh, full of lust and of greed and of gossip and of anger and of bitterness and of self-righteousness. That's how we come tonight. But Lord, would you remind us, would you bring us, would you give us a vision that, Lord, this is this vision that John is painting for us isn't just some remote relic from years past. This is, if we could have eyes to see what is happening at this very moment, you are on the throne. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, our sins. And Lord, you are even at this moment, the angels and the elders and the four living creatures are all belting out your praises because they are so moved by you. So Lord, would you um, give us a picture, give us a, a vision of that tonight, that we might see you, that we might see what you've done for us, and that Lord, our, our leaving this place tonight, we might be changed. Um, so Lord, we ask these things, that you would do these things by your spirit in our midst tonight as we look at your word in Revelation. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So uh, if you're here last week, you know, we talked a lot about anxiety and we talked a, uh, a lot about how part of the healing of our anxiety is there's one on the throne. He cares. He really is ruling over all things. The throne is not empty. God is on the throne. But I want to have like a kind of a what if scenario tonight, because I think part of how anxiety happens for us, part of how worry happens for us, part of the pains of being young, part of the, the anxiety that we feel about the not just now, but of the future Lies in we don't know God's will for our lives, right? Like we don't know. Part of our anxiety is we don't know what's going to happen. So let me just say, let's just play like a devil's advocate or like a what if scenario tonight. What if I told you tonight, person by person, in my backpack, I had a flash drive. And on that flash drive, I had for you the following information. Number one, who you're going to marry or if you're going to marry. Ooh, that was harsh. <laughs> let's keep going. Uh, where are you going to live? What kind of jobs you're going to work in? How many kids you're going to have? Uh, uh, all the great things that are going to happen to you. All of the horrible things, the hard things that are going to happen to you. And, of course, the exact time and place and way that you're going to die. Would you come up to me afterwards and be like, hey, I'd like to grab that flash drive from you. And if you did, would you open it? And what would opening it be like? And I was thinking about this for myself. I'm not sure, to be honest, what my answer would be. I mean, I feel like the, the, you know, the pushback would be the anxieties of knowing all of this, especially the hard things or the things that you've never dreamed for your life. I can tell you at 37 with four kids, I'm a two, <laughs> my mentor likes to say I'm a two-kid parent with four kids. My wife is a six-kid mom with four kids. So we met in the middle, and it was beautiful. 
But you don't know where your life is going to go, right? The Beatles said it well. John Lennon said it well. Life is what happens when you're making other plans. Would you open it, though? Would you want it? To understand this passage tonight, you have to understand the, the vision start. We're, we're starting with this weird picture, and it's a picture of this scroll, right? So we're back to the throne, but this new image, these new details emerge, and the one seated on this throne that we looked at last week is holding this scroll. And the problem is that here's this scroll, and what it represents is everything that's ever happened to every single person on earth and not just in the past in the in the at present but in the future the way things are going the plans the the blueprints so to speak all of the joys and all of the heartaches and what god plans to do about it this is what the scroll if we could just sum it up means and then John, but here's the problem. John sees a scroll and he says, if you're following, there's this huge problem. Is that there's no one on heaven, in heaven or on earth or even under the earth, if we were like not sure, that could possibly be worthy to hold, much less open the scroll. And so he starts weeping. This is a weird passage. Like John is crying his eyes out. Why? Because if there isn't someone, here's the thing you have to understand tonight. If there isn't someone worthy enough to open the scroll, it means, here's what it means. You have to understand this if you're on a track with me tonight. It means there is no one powerful enough to hold all of our stories. And there is no one good enough or pure enough to not use our stories for selfish gain. There's no one powerful enough to hold our stories to make them mean something. And there's no one pure enough. There's no one good enough. There's no one kind enough or gracious enough to not use the information or to use especially the mistakes of our stories for his own selfish gain. And so John is devastated by this and he starts weeping. And here's the thing. This is just to bring it to us. If there is no one worthy of holding all, not just all the information that's ever happened in the history of the world, but all of our stories and where they're going. If no one is able to do that, here's what you have to understand, then life is essentially meaningless. There's no hope for me, and there's no hope for you. If there isn't someone who is behind and can work in powerful ways within my story and make, them mean, and make it mean something, much less change the places where I long and need to be changed, then what's the point? Where are we going? I was thinking about like this. This is why part of why I love Parks and Rec is I think Parks and Rec has all of the perfect characters. But if there's no one who can open the scroll, if there's no one worthy of holding it, then we're reduced to one of two choices. We're reduced to April Ludgate, and we're just a constantly a bummer, which is, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of people I like. If you're not a little bit cynical, I don't trust you even a little bit. Or Andy Dwyer, where you're like, Let's just be naive about life and everything and blissfully do whatever we want all the time. But you're, you see the thing, you're reduced to one of those choices. You're either relentlessly a bummer or you are relentlessly naive. If there's no one who's worthy of holding, much less opening and handling the scroll, handling our stories. But then something happens. And this is where we're going tonight. Uh, this figure emerges. We know him better as Jesus. And John is told by the elder, one of the elders, to weep no more. That there is someone, in fact, who's worthy to open the scrolls. There is someone who is powerful enough to hold your story. And there is someone who is pure enough to not use it for selfish gain. And we know him as Jesus. And John sees two things. What we're going to do tonight is pretty simple. He, sees, he paints these two 
very different pictures of Jesus that are one Jesus. But we have to have both of them if we're ever gonna if we're ever gonna not be April, if we're ever gonna not be Andy, if we're ever gonna live our lives with purpose and be take ourselves seriously in the bestness of the world, but also have the hope that, that God is doing something, that Jesus can do something with my story. And here's what he sees. Really, really simple, two points tonight. Here's the first, that Jesus Christ is a lion. This is the first super simple point. Jesus is a lion. So verse 5, look, weep no more. Behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Weep no more. Why? The lion of Judah is holding the scroll. He has owned the throne, seated at the right hand of the Father. Weep no more. There is a lion at the throne. The elder is drawing from Genesis 49. Remember, Revelation is full. If we don't know our Old Testament, we're not going to understand Revelation. He's drawing from uh, this prophecy in Genesis 49, where here's what Genesis says. It says, Judah is a lion's cub. talking about the tribes. He says, Judah, the tribe of Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus, the elder in this passage is saying, from the throne, Jesus is this lion, the lion of Judah, the promised one who is going to reign, and the obedience of all the peoples. That means all kinds of peoples, and that means literally every single human being to ever live is going to be laid at his feet. Uh, the thing, this has been funny, like I was literally went back today and was like Googling lions, just trying to think, what do I not remember about lions? And there were two things that kind of came to my mind that I, I know, but didn't know, no, you know what I'm saying? Here's the first, the two things you have to understand about lions, just the, the animal itself. Number one, they are extremely protective, in fact, didn't really realize that's like we go, we take my kids to the zoo. It's a good time. We have seen, we went on uh, for the lights at Christmas and the lion came out and started roaring a little bit. It is powerful, but did you know that the roar, you may, you might know this, but the roar of a lion when it's loud enough can be heard for upwards of five miles. And that roar is meant to do two things. The roar is meant to warn any potential threats from coming near the pride. And it's meant to gather any straying from the pride back into the fold. That's the whole point of why a lion roars, especially at night. But then the second thing you have to understand, this kind of the scarier part of lions, why you and I, if we were doing a safari, would not just go try to pet a lion, is they are relentless. Like when they lock in on a prey, lions are famous. That's why they're the kings of the jungle, right? They are relentless in their determination to lock in and have their way with their prey. And here John is saying, there's something about this that we have to see in Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis, no doubt, as he was preparing, i got to go with Lewis here tonight, you understand. He was, he was thinking about how can he best picture Jesus. Of course, he chooses a lion for some of these reasons. But there's a scene in Silver Chair, you've probably heard me say it before, but it's one of my favorite scenes. Where Jill, she's dying of thirst. She has not yet met Aslan yet. She comes by the stream. She's dying of thirst. She just longs to drink from these waters. And here's how the story goes. She sees the pool, and then she sees this lion. And here's how the conversation happens. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. 
Then drink, said the lion. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Joel. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. Oh yeah, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come near and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. And it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. Let's think about this. Uh, I don't, you've probably followed the news. Uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But weeks ago, I mean, it's still in the news cycle, this guy, Larry Nasser, who, if you followed it, you know his name. He's a doctor at Michigan State. And he molested the count, I think at this point, is definitely over 100 girls in his tenure as both the medical, one of the medical um, trainers at, at uh, Michigan State and also more... Um, famously as the Olympic uh, gymnast doctor, essentially. And he just, he, he molested, took advantage of literally hundreds of girls. And a few weeks ago, there was this testimony, maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't, where uh, there was a dad who had two girls uh, who Larry Nasser had had his way with. And it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen as a father of children, of, of three girls, watching this dad, because basically he gets up there, he's testifying against Nasser, and then in a moment of just the most beautiful anger I've ever seen, he looks at Nasser, and he asks the judge, he says, Judge, I ask you that I could have 10 minutes in a room with this demon. And she, of course, says no. And he says, five minutes, Judge, just give me five minutes in a room alone with this monster. And, of course, she says no. And then if you saw it, he rushes the stand. And he's going to try to, you know, hurt Larry Nasser. And as I was watching it, just crying my eyes out because I can't imagine that feeling as a dad. And the anger you would feel at a man who, in the name of medicine, molested your children. And as I was watching it, the thought that I couldn't shake is, if this is how this flawed father feels about this, imagine how Jesus feels. Imagine the righteous anger that Jesus feels toward Larry Nasser, toward that what happened for all hundreds of girls. Imagine. And this is what you have to understand this about Jesus. He is a lion. He roars in protection over the sin that would destroy us. And he relentlessly wants to root it out of your life and of my life. And he is relentless and determined to not leave you in the snare of sin, but to bring you back into his fold, into his pride. He has all authority 
in all power. You have to hear me. Some of you are here and you are despairing. And maybe it is about things that you've done. Or maybe it is about struggles in your life that you just can't shake. And you have to hear me say that Jesus is still the Lion of Judah. And he still has all authority and power to do the things in your life that you are helpless to do. And to do the things in my life that I am helpless to do. And that includes the forgiveness of sins that you and I shudder to even mention. Jesus is still the Lion of Judah. But then here's the second thing you've got to see. Verse 6, the second, last thing we're going to cut tonight. Here's what John says. He hears the elders say, who's worthy of opening the scroll? Who's worthy of holding your story? Who has that kind of power where he can literally bring meaning out of your story and out of my life and your life? Here's what happens, though. He says, Lion of Judah. And so, John, put yourself in John's face. He's looking at the throne. Where's the lion? Where is the lion? And then verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Again, John hears about this lion and he's looking for a lion. And instead, he sees something totally different, totally unexpected. He sees a lamb. Not, here's what you have to understand. It's not just a lamb. Because I was studying this, there are two Greek words for lamb. One is an adult sheep that no doubt you've seen if you've ever gone to like a farm. Or the other Greek word is a little baby lamb. That's the word John uses. Not just the sheep, but a a little lamb. And not just that. Not just this little baby lamb, but one who looks as if he has been slain. In other words, a little lamb who looks like he's dying and he's covered in blood. You understand this is not what John thought he was going to see. But you also understand this is huge for you and I to see. What does it mean? What in the world do we do with this? Here's what we do with it. Uh, The conquering lion, the way that he conquers is through the gentle unbelievably kind sacrificial love of a lamb if you don't have both of these understandings of jesus you've got the wrong jesus he is the lion who roars and he is the lamb who bleats as he sacrifices his life for you and for me this is what i was thinking about today uh So it's Black History Month, and so I've been thinking about kind of studying different important stories. And one of the the most um, one of the most important stories happened November fourteenth, nineteen sixty. It was in New Orleans. It was at this small uh, elementary school that was all white, uh, even though integration had legally been declared. Probably, I think, if I have my my dates right, four years before nineteen sixty. Uh, Southern towns, Columbia was one of those towns, was still steadfast in keeping segregation. And so here comes this little girl. She's six years old. Her name is Ruby Bridges. And her parents, they're not, they're not trying to make themselves into civil rights activists. They just want their daughter to have a good education. And so they decide November 14th, she's going to school. Well, you can imagine in New Orleans in 1960, this was a big deal. So here, I actually was watching the video today. You can still find it. It's in uh, PBS. Ruby Bridges gets in the car. She's six years old. I've got a six-year-old. She has no idea what's happening. She literally, she describes what it was like to drive up to the school And she said she saw barricades of people, and they were all, like, seemed really worked up. And she said, I thought it was Mardi Gras. 
She said, I had no idea that they were worked up about me. And so here she is with her, her parents and two U.S. Marshals, and she's escorted into the school. Y'all, if you watch the video, you can hear these angry white people just yelling horrible things at her. Some of them start throwing things. Thankfully, none of them hit her. As she is ushered into the school, you see parents rush in, and, and there were like 100 kids they pulled out of the schools just because this little black girl wanted to go to school with them. And when you listen, there's this beautiful interview she met with. This happened for almost half of a year. And literally, there was this one teacher who was about it and taught just Ruby Bridges for half of a year. And you can imagine a six-year-old trying to process every day she shows up to school. Every day, if you go back and look at it, every day there are crowds of angry white people saying things, calling her names that I won't say here, throwing things. She shows up. She's trying to get an education. She started meeting with a child psychiatrist, and there's this one beautiful story that comes out of it. His name is Dr. Robert Coles, and uh, in her life biography, this is a conversation worth reading. It was about one of her rides to school, and he kind of would was around her, would watch her, would just enter into her life and try to help her process what was happening. Here's how the conversation went. He, Dr. Coles says, honey, I saw you talking to them, talking about the white people. Did you finally get angry with them? Did you tell them to just leave you alone? And Ruby says, no. I didn't tell them anything. I didn't talk to them. And Dr. Cole says, I was there. I saw your lips move. And Ruby says, but I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. Praying for them? Yeah, I pray for them every day in the car, but I forgot that day. Oh, what prayer did you say? Please, God, forgive these people because even if they say those mean things, they don't know what they're doing. So you can forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you. As I was thinking about Ruby Bridges, here she is. What is she? She's a little lamb. And she's entering into one of the darkest spots in our nation's history. And she's absorbing all of that anger. And she's absorbing all of that hate. And she's absorbing all of that racism. And she's absorbing all of those slurs. And she's absorbing all of that violence. And she's absorbing it all. Why? She's doing it in the name of Jesus. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not just the lion who confronts and calls out sin. He is also the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Who absorbs your your nasty heart and what it's done. And my nasty heart and what it's done. This is the way I was thinking about it. The, the way of the Lion of Judah is through the sacrificial love of a lamb. This is the way I was thinking about it. Think about it. We, we have to hold both. He pursues us relentlessly like a lion. And yet at the same time, he does it as tenderly as a lamb. He roars like a lion against the sins that would destroy you and me. But then he bleats as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Because he is conquered like a lion, we can have hope that there is nothing in our lives that he cannot conquer, that he cannot overcome by his power. But because he has suffered like a lamb, you have to see this, y'all. Because he has suffered like a lamb, we can also know that he does this knowing full well our sorrows and our heartaches and what it's like to be a human being in a fallen world. Jesus knows this as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here's what you have to see. 
What does this produce? I love verse 9 in this passage. John looks at this, this, this lion of Judah who is also the lamb at the center of the throne. And in verse 9, he says he sees people. What does, this, what does this do? He sees people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Listen, this is what the tax collectors and prostitutes found beautiful about Jesus. He called out and called them out like a lion, the things that were destroying them. And yet at the same time, because he had come for them, because he'd come to, to die the death they deserved to die, at the same time he had compassion for them and he wasn't afraid to forgive them and to meet them where they were. And this is, y'all, this is what the Pharisees hated about Jesus. They weren't looking for a lion who was roaring about sin. They were looking for a lion who was roaring about the sins of others. They weren't looking at a lion who was going to roar about their sins. And they definitely weren't looking for a lamb. They thought they had taken care of their relationship with God on their own a long time ago. And when Jesus said he came to die for them, they were not looking for that. They didn't need forgiveness. The Pharisees, why, the Pharisees thought they were, open, they were worthy to open the scroll. And this is why when you're living like a Pharisee, you feel free to judge and make judgments on the lives of others. Why? You think you're worthy to hold the scroll. You think that scroll belongs to you. But when you're a tax collector, when you're a prostitute, and you know your unworthiness, and you feel it, you're longing for someone to meet you in your story. You're longing for someone who can both forgive the things you've done, but also take control and change the things you long to be changed. Uh, I love the way Brendan Manning gets to this. Say your hand out. He says, because salvation is by grace through faith. I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could faced with grueling alternatives. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street who as he falls asleep each night after his last trick whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. But how, we ask. Then the voice says, They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, invested by trials, wearing the bloody garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. My friends, that's what I believe you with. My friends... If this is not good news to you, you've never understood the gospel of grace. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, would you make this good news to us? Would you break hard hearts? Would you bind up broken hearts? Would you be the one um, who is both the lion and the lamb in our lives? We thank you that you are these things. Would you help? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.